Sports Charlotte is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com. Hey, everybody. This is Herb White, Editor-in-Chief at the Charlotte Post, and this is Sports Charlotte. 2022 may seem like a long way off, but if your dream is making it to the Olympics that year, it's right around the corner. That's where Mystique Rowe is. She is a skeleton racer and a Queens University of Charlotte graduate. And her goal has always been to participate in the Olympics. As a young person, her goal was to make it as a track athlete. But sometimes those plans get moved around a little bit. And now her goal is to make the Winter Games riding on a skeleton, which is a sled that sits on a sheet of ice and can reach speeds of 80 miles an hour. That's her dream. That's her goal. That's what she's working for. And I had a chance to talk to her via telephone about those dreams, those aspirations, and what in the world is a woman from Virginia doing with a sport that is contested on ice in the cold. It's an interesting story, and here it is. You were a track athlete at Queens, correct? Yes, sir. All right. So what led you to Queens? Um, so I'm actually from Northern Virginia, a little town called Noxville near Manassas, um, about an hour or so west of the D.C. So it's a little town, um, I went to school, like I went to high school there and basically I just, I wanted to compete collegiately and try to fill it in college. And, um, I took that the fall after my, uh, senior year of high school, which was, uh, I graduated spring of 2012. So the fall of 2012, I was supposed to be my first semester of college, but I took that period off and I was in Korea for a little bit, um, visiting family. And then I ended up, when I came back, applying to Queens and, got a job, and then I got into Queens, and so I kind of worked to save some money up to be able to drive down to North Carolina and go to school, um, and that was in January 2013, was my first semester, so I pretty much just wanted to uh, compete collegially in the track and field. So did Queens recruit you, or did you recruit Queens? Um, it was kind of a weird, like, uh, falling of events, so uh, I originally got a, a letter um uh, from a coach that used to work at Queens. And it turns out she actually graduated from my high school, Brentsville. So it was just kind of a small world situation. And then I kind of wrote it off at the time period, like early senior year of my high school. And then towards the end, when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to do, I reached out to Queens um, University, but there was a different coach who responded, uh, the current coach, Jim Barenkamp. And uh, we kind of had our conversation there about what I was looking for and see if I would match the program. So I turned out to be his first recruit because it was his first year of coaching as a head coach there. Wow, that is, so, that's an interesting story. It's kind of a yeah. sort of a roundabout way of getting there. Yeah. Okay. So uh, 
which events did you compete in at Queens? Uh, I I did have background in hurdles, but I I did multiple events. So I have experience like jumping, throwing, hurdling, relays, open sprints. So I came in, kind of did whatever I needed to do, and I did I competed in a couple of heptathlons and pentathlons, but I kind of did a little bit of everything under the eight hundred meter. Okay, um, so yeah. you ran, jumped, threw, whatever was needed. Yep. Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> okay, so then you graduate Queens, but help me with the story in terms of how you became a skeleton and bobsled athlete. Uh, what, there was a combine in Charlotte that was going on, and you were recommended for it, or how did that turn out? So, um 2016, um, by normal track is when I should have graduated, but I was a semester behind. So, um, end of 2016 season, uh, my team and I went to nationals. So, a teammate and I were kind of just chilling. Uh, she just graduated. I had one more semester left in school. And it turns out the United States Boston Skeleton Federation, they have recruiting coaches that send emails out to the coaches across the country just asking if they have any athletes that would be interested in trying out their bobsled or skeleton. And so, they have, like, these, these – they send out, like, a schedule of combines, and the closest one to me at the time period was in Columbia, South Carolina. So that teammate and I, Nikia Squire, we went down to Columbia and combined, um, and we did really well. And we both got recruited to come back to the Rookie Push Championships, which was going to be in the Placid later that summer in August, um, just to compete. Yeah. So was that – how much did you know about the sport? when you were showing up in South Carolina? Uh, very little. The first time I ever saw bobsled was for the 2010 games. Uh, Steve Holcomb was driving, and that was my, like, I guess my gateway into the whole sport. But I never, like, I saw a skeleton, and I was like, that's absolutely insane. I would never do that. And so when I went to the combine in 2016, I was, the mindset I was, I wanted to do bobsled and bobsled only. And so the coaches kind of saw me. Um, I'm five three and a half and one thirty. So they're like, they let me kind of. You want to do both? That's fine. So I did the combine like that. But then as we get closer to rookie push championships, they kind of told me like you're a little small, so you might want to at least consider skeleton. And I was like, all right. So I mean, anything to kind of continue the journey. So I, I agreed to it. And uh, when I got to like classic for the rookie combine, rookie push championships, I did both of the pushing classes for the bobsled and skeleton. And um, turns out a skeleton clicks a little bit quicker for me, and I did a lot better in skeleton pushing. So what's the difference between skeleton and bobsledding? So bobsled um, is it's a very big sled. It holds two people to four people, depending on the event. The women only have two um, athletes in the sled, and they have two, two men and four men. But that sled's about two, three hundred pounds, and it's very heavy. So a lot of times they require a lot of mass and strong athletes to push it. And then skeleton is a single rider uh, where you're lying on your stomach going head first down the ice chute. So it's the same track, just a different type of sled. Both of them seem uh, rather fast and potentially dangerous. Uh, yeah, they can be. Yeah, and I had been seeing over the years, I guess, where uh, NASCAR, for instance, 
had designers that were involved in designing sleds and that kind of thing. And so uh, speed, tenths of a second, can mean the difference between a metal and being locked out. So uh, kind of give me that idea of when you strap into a sled, what that is like. And I'm guessing it's got to be a rush either way. Yeah. It's it's kind of it's funny about NASCAR. That's something I, I think about a lot, and that's what, uh, over time, as the years have gone and the technology has improved, and how athletes um, approach sliding has drastically changed. So for me, um, well, when I came in the sport, it was kind of like you run, you jump on, and you just drive. Um, but as we progress in the sport, as sports evolves, um, you learn it's a lot more than that. It's a lot more finesse-based, a lot more mental preparation before you get onto the sled. So um, pretty much when you're in season, um, when you're sliding, unless you're, like, camped out at a track, um, you pretty much have two to four runs a day. And those runs are at most at averaging a minute long, depending on the track and um, whatever. So pretty much all you have for training, if that makes sense, is two minutes a day to, you know, work on your craft. So a lot of the preparation that comes is before you get to the track. So doing, um, it's kind of like YouTube school. Like you go online and you watch YouTube, like race, like um, videos of old races, POVs to kind of go through the motions of um, the mental preparation to kind of slide in your mind so you know what to expect and how to prepare. And so that aspect's really helpful. But then when you actually get to the track, it's trying to find a balance between really explosivity and being really powerful off the block. But then the moment you load on that sled, you have to really calm down. So it's like finding a very peaceful, like state of mind to be able to be more alert. Yeah. So you've got obviously a, a, a very good track record in terms of success. And I had seen where you were third in last year's, North America Cup standings, uh, finished it on a high note with a couple of goals. And it looked like, you know, everything is in place. And I'm assuming the training continues on because everybody who's a professional or really good at a sport, it's a year-round thing nowadays. And now we're in the middle of a pandemic. How I... much did that impact what you're doing considering that the weather's warming up now. So I'm assuming that training in the, in the spring and the summer is very different from the winter. Uh, so pretty much um, what I, I guess what my greatest asset is my experience um, training as a track foot athlete. So originally when I started the journey in skeleton, I was kind of floating around trying to figure out where I wanted to be and going into um at the end of my second year, I came to the idea that it would be better to kind of go back to where I'm comfortable, where I'm familiar. So that's when the move back to Charlotte came into play. My coach is here, my campus is here, and access to facilities and access to my coach was a huge thing that I knew that was going to be beneficial to me. And um, working and living with a teammate uh, helps kind of help uh, the mental aspect of it. So the training we do um, before we get to the track. And so when I got to the track, when I got into the season – it was a complete, like, game-on switch. Um, my entire performance drastically shifted because of how my focus was um, changed. 
So taking what I learned from last year and then adding some new things as far as like focusing on things I'm not necessarily good at, working on some weaknesses and just kind of managing what we have access to. So we can't go to the gym. So there's plenty of things, you know, we can do at home, like home-based workouts, which has been really great because social media is kind of rallied behind um, all the fitness trainers to kind of help promote this active lifestyle with the new reality that we're living in. So taking advantage of the different resources that have been out there and um, accessible from just everyone's standpoint and just taking this time to focus on the things that we might not work on so much. So this has been a great opportunity to watch races, uh, to, like, go over notes again and just do more mental prep to kind of help us not get out of the mode of sliding since we're not up there sliding right now. That's really interesting because if you look at some of the other sports, uh, and how they've been impacted by the shutdown of facilities and things like that. Uh, football players are doing stuff virtually. Baseball players virtually. And on and on and on. But it sounds as if this is actually something where it's been helpful to you because you can see better in terms of the techniques that you need to work on or uh gaining some level of insight by watching races that have already happened. Right. Wow. That, that is different. So so you've benefited from it. Yeah, I think the biggest thing is uh, the awesome thing about our sport is uh, we all, every year we have a selection race and pretty much that just determines however you fall out in the ring is basically what circuit you're going to compete on. And, for the most part, we understand what tracks are going to be used during the competition season, but you don't know which one you're going to go to what time period. So, um, like, last year was the first time I went to Europe because I made the Europa Cup, and that was three new tracks that I was competing on. And then I added two more tracks to kind of just train at. So a lot of the times you're learning on the fly. Like, we go to a place we've never been to, and you have three days to prepare to uh, train before you have races, and each of those days you only have two runs. So that's two minutes a day to prepare for uh, a race that matters, that you get points at, that you get rankings, and all this other stuff. There's a lot of writing on it. So the more prepared you are, the less stressful and, the, like, the less anxiety, I guess, you have going into something that's unknown and that fear factor that kicks in as you – approach that kind of um that kind of an environment that races that sounds like a lot of pressure you only get a couple of minutes and you have to get it together and get down yeah. that hill so now the only track that i know of and familiar with in the u.s is lake placid so uh, where do you get a, a good run in terms of U.S. facilities, is it just Lake Placid or are there other places, and I'm guessing here totally, that there aren't places in the South that you can do this easily? So actual sliding facilities would be Lake Placid and Park City, Utah, and this is where the Salt Lake Games were in 2002. So those are the only two sliding tracks in the country. The Olympic Training Center, there's one in Lake Placid, Colorado, and I believe Chula Vista. And I know that there's other big facilities that are around that aren't necessarily Olympic sites, but they do, they are recognized as home aces for certain athletes in different sports. 
So right now, like, we're just in Charlotte, so I've just been using Queens Campus, but there's different facilities, I'm sure, that are nearby that I could have access to. Now, that is really interesting. I, I had no idea that you could uh, put together a training regiment in Charlotte. You know, I would figure, yeah, if, if you if you're doing bobsled and skeleton, you've got to be in cold weather places. Uh, Lake Placid, you talked about in New, in New York. Uh, Tula Vista, that's in what California, right? Yep. And, <laughs> yeah. So it's it, it seems as if that's the type of places that you would need to be, but. Why Charlotte? You talked about uh, your coaches here and everything, but is that just a level of comfort for you in terms of you're familiar with the place and you've known it since college and it just works better for you? I think it was just good timing because um, as of right now, I know in like Placid they're working on building a push track, which the only one in the continent is in Calgary, um, at least in like one that's actually an ice house facility. And so Lake Placid is trying to build one, and that should be opened up in October this year um, if things are still going on track because of the pandemic. But um, a lot of athletes on the team are – they live in near Utah, like near the Park City track or in Colorado near that um, Olympic training facility or, or in Lake Placid. And obviously – from the reasoning for me for certain for living in Charlotte just was familiarity and just being able to get what I need out of training. But moving forward, when the track, when the push house and the class gets built, that would be a good place to stay. Um, try to get housing or residency and work out at that Olympic training site. Um, just because I have access to the push track, which is something that's very fundamental to the sport, which is just working on my start and getting more comfortable, trying new things and trying to be more powerful off the block. It's, it's really important getting those reps in because it's very difficult to try to work on something and only get two runs to do it. Now, is is do tracks differ from facility to facility? So when you're competing, is uh, facility A different than facility B, or are they all pretty much built the same? Oh, no, that was something that I had to adapt to um, from track. track. Every track you go to is going to be the same. Um, in track and field, but in Boston Skeleton, every track is different. There might be certain nuances that are similar, but a lot of tracks are very, very, very different. Um, like my first two years competing for the U.S., uh, I was spent in the um, in the country, and I went to Calgary a couple times. But Calgary has a Chrysler, which is a bit, I was almost it's pretty much a 360 uh, triple pressure curve versus. Lake Placid, which is a very long and kind of people describe it as like a washing machine because it's going, it's coming back and forth continuously. And then you have Park City, which is these really big double pressures and you pick up speed very quickly. So every track is designed differently and it caters to different types of sliders. And it's a matter of being adaptable. So every track is different. Every ramp for the start is different. And which is why it's so important to do the preparations before you get there because once you get there, you, you're constantly learning on the fly, and you're making those adaptations between, like after your run, between the runs, and then if you're even able to kind of have continuous days of sliding, depending on the, the conditions. How fast are we talking here? Various between tracks. 
So okay. the fastest track in the world is Whistler, which is the Vancouver, which was the 2010 games, I believe. Yeah, 2010. And that track, I believe, is over easily over 80 miles an hour. Wow. So Most uh, other tracks would be around mid-70s. Mm-hmm. So that's why, even though it's 80 miles an hour, which, you know, is a lot of speed when you're talking about ice and everything, you have to, it sounds as if you have to be very precise because the slightest little mistake could be catastrophic. Yeah, um, the funny thing is, um, people think skeleton's the most dangerous sport, but it's actually not. It's luge and bobsled is more dangerous. Bobsled because it's a heavier sled, and when it does wreck, it's very long and it's very like gruesome on the way down just because it's it's a big metal object luge um their their runners under their sled are different they're sharper so their sleds are more sensitive so the slightest being slightly off can really put them in a weird um traction and they kind of like have a really bad run for skeleton our runners are pretty round the the, bla- the part that goes on that touches the ice so if we do make a mistake We'll usually skid, so that for us it's more of it costs us time versus it actually being actually very dangerous for us. You can still get hit, like hit the walls and it hurts, but it's more it costs you time. Okay, so now obviously the the question that is always on the mind is your next big event, and obviously the Olympics, twenty twenty two. Yes. Are you, where are you in terms of preparation for that, or is it too early to even get into preparation for 2022? Um, I think this is it's perfect. Uh, when I first came to the sport, uh, 2018 was never ever an idea. Uh, it was just kind of like something to watch and see how th- how things ran with the federation, how the athletes prepared for it, and how just the nature of the sport. Um, preps for the Olympics, which is very interesting to see and just be able to watch it unfold. So I think that did a lot for laying the groundwork of what to expect going into this, um, towards the end of this Olympic quad. But right now, uh, at the beginning of the season, this past season, I, I entered the season ranks number seven, and my progression is, at my home track at least, has been very, very good. So unfortunately, we didn't get to race at our final race of the season because um, they shut down the tracks and kind of canceled logistics for everybody. But uh, we were very excited just to see how everyone kind of panned out after at the end of the season. But I'm really excited. I think with how my training's going, both physically and mentally, I'm in a better position to be more competitive to chase down a national team spot, which is top six in the nation. And being number seven, I just missed it. But I think um, if I keep going with what I'm doing, I think that'll put me in a really good spot to actually make that dream a reality. Yeah. So, um, you know, not to try to look too far ahead, but how big would that be for you to be able to make an Olympic team? That would that would be awesome. Um, I like as a, as a kid, I always dreamed about going to the Olympics. Um, I thought it would be for track and field, but that was not feasible just with how competitive the sport is and just what I was doing. In preparation for that, but um, it's a big deal. It's a, it just realizing for me, it was just a huge thing about just supporting um, this idea of being. I don't know. It's really hard to put into words. I'm one of eleven to start, so for me, a lot of things I've done has been the first in my family to do something. I was the first to go to college, first to compete collegiately, get my degree, and now I'm doing this. 
So I'm the oldest of 10 of the kids. I have an older half-brother, but I think it was a big deal. And for me, like, moving forward, I, I really wanted this to be something for uh, just, like, it's inspiring, yes, to kind of have this group of individuals and how fast they've progressed and just competing with so many women who are really good athletes and just seeing how the sport has evolved and what it takes to actually get to that level. I think to me that would just be a huge undertaking and a great um, thing, to, a great accomplishment to be able to share with some other athletes. And when you mentioned that you're one of 11, I would imagine competing is sort of like what you have to do all the time. Oh, it's normal. <laughs> So, uh, what types of stuff did did you have to compete in terms of uh, sports or grades or just whatever? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so I have a I have a twin sister, but I did a lot of like the house stuff. So I was the one that always baked and cooked. So I cooked all this food for everybody. And the moment grace was said, my brother, I had eight brothers. So. It was game on, and I never got second. So it was always a competition to try to make sure you got what you needed and keep it going, pretty much. I, I would imagine with eight brothers, food magically levitates as soon as it's mm-hmm. on the table. Yep. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, th- it sounds like a really great experience that you're having, and it's uh, obviously a little early to get totally into – cold weather mode for 2022 but it sounds like it, you're well on your way and if you can get one more step then you're in which sounds like it's very possible yeah i'm excited things are going really well many thanks to mystique Rowe for her conversation her input and her dreams and aspirations about 2022 and the olympic games as well as you're taking the time to listen to us and download episodes of Sports Charlotte. Of course, you can download it at Queen City Podcast Network, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and SoundCloud, as well as checking us out on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and a new edition, TikTok as well as good old-fashioned internet stuff like our web page, our website, thecharlottepost.com. My name is Herb White. Thanks for listening. Sport Charlotte is a member of the Queen City Podcast Network, powered by Ortho Carolina. Find out more at queencitypodcastnetwork.com.